you know, the idea of the prophetic, I guess, ministry in, in the Bible, prophets are those that speak for the Lord, and, and we've already seen a lot of great examples of that, but really, the Lord knows the end from the beginning, and then he says in Amos 3, 7, he says he never does anything without first telling his servants the prophets, and so it's, it's an interesting idea that God chooses to speak through human beings. This has been the way that, uh, that he's chosen to orchestrate the prophetic ministry and to, to know when the Lord is speaking. And if, if a prophet says something is to come to pass and it doesn't, you know he wasn't a prophet or she, but this is a way of the Lord communicating his heart to the assembly of his people comes through uh, people. He speaks through other human beings that are brought into that ministry. So I want to look tonight at four examples. We're going to look at Habakkuk, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Nehemiah, and then we'll dive into a few questions. And, and again, this is not exhaustive or comprehensive. I just wanted to share a few thoughts that I've been having as I've been kind of processing, you know, why, why these, these books of the Bible are there, what they can teach us, what, what they can show us about um, God's heart, what, what it can teach us about uh, what he desires from us when he calls us into prophetic ministry as watchmen. So in Habakkuk, um, let's, you can follow along. I'm going to quote some, some verses here. Let's just look at Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 1, to start off with. And there will be some other key verses. But um, I love this verse. It says, I'll take my stand at my watch post. And station myself on my tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. In, in the first chapter of Habakkuk, Habakkuk actually raises a complaint with the Lord about he sees evil. How, basically, he's asking a question, how long is evil going to prosper? Where are you, Lord? Why, why are bad things happening in Israel? And the Lord actually stuns him, surprises him, and begins to tell him, I'm going to do something uh, that you're not expecting, Habakkuk. I'm going to raise up the Assyrians. They're going to come. I'm going to bring a violent, brutal people to come against Israel. I love the idea of, of a watchman ascending and going up into their own watchtower and communicating with God. I love the interplay between God and his people. Uh, you can see Abraham would have conversations with God. We see that in Sodom and Gomorrah, like Okay, you're, you're saying you're going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, but would you destroy the righteous along with the wicked? What if there were 50 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah? Would you, would you still destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? And the Lord said, no, I wouldn't do it if there were 50 righteous. Okay, Lord, but what if there were 40? And what if there were 30? And what if there were 25? So there's this conversational relationship that God has with his servants, the prophets. Uh, you see the same thing with Moses where the Lord's like, I'm ready to destroy Israel for all of her idolatry. I'm going to start over with you, Moses. And, and Moses actually says, Lord, uh, blot me out, but don't do this to your people. And he actually intercedes and has this back and forth with God. And, and you know, God listens to Moses and he listens to Abraham. Here we have another great example of Habakkuk. You know, God's answers and plans and purposes in, in chapter one are actually stunning and shocking and confusing to Habakkuk. He has no grid for what God is going to do or why he is saying what he's saying. From Habakkuk's perspective, the Assyrians are really wicked, evil people. Why would a good, holy God choose to work through his purposes through evil, wicked people? 
it's a great question. And one of those ones that we can, you know, if you guys want to come back to it at the end of our, of our time tonight and discuss it a little bit, it's, it's kind of fun and fascinating to think about. Of course, that idea gets its ultimate fulfillment when the Lord allows the Antichrist regime to actually come and have the Antichrist is going to get his hour on the stage. God doesn't just uh, immediately vanquish evil. He, he, he actually permits evil. I'm not saying he condones it. There's a big difference. He permits evil and actually uses evil for his purposes to bring about good. It's shocking. We see that in, in, the, in the story of Joseph. You know, Joseph gets that revelation. Look, you, what you meant was evil, but God meant it for good. God was working at, he was playing three-dimensional chess, uh, and he, he brought about good, even when evil motives, evil actions, evil deeds were in play, and we see over and over again in the prophets that when God begins to move in judgment, he moves often in famine, in pestilence, and with the sword, and here he's laying out some plans and purposes to Habakkuk that he's going to actually, because of Israel's idolatry and faithlessness, He's going to bring the Assyrians in. And so sometimes the Lord's answers, plans, and purposes are going to shock, stun, and confuse us and not make sense to us uh, on the surface. But here in this verse, you know, Habakkuk is exhi exhibiting the core rhythm in a prophet's life or in a watchman's life or really in any believer's life has to be. We need to be inquiring, seeking, and sustaining a conversational relationship with God. You know, so here I love the idea of a watchtower because one of the watchman's callings, as we're going to see when we get to Ezekiel in a minute, a watchman's charged with warning the inhabitants of the city or the nation of, of what is coming against them. And so the watchtower is symbolic of that, uh, that calling and that vocation that if you're a garden or watchtower, you are out looking onto the horizon and you are anticipating threats and you're prepared to ring the alarm bell if you need to. Uh, and you are scanning vigilantly for any kind of evil, any kind of threat that's coming against your people. And so Habakkuk is up there and he is he's wanting to have this hard conversation with God. And I, I love that God is not uh, he, he actually encourages us to come with our hard questions he wants to have, have some hard conversations with us. The Bible is filled with example after example after example of the Lord walking with men and women and in this conversational relationship with the Lord. And so that's the core rhythm that I want to establish in the prophet's life and in the watchman's life. You know, Jesus counsels us to go and pray in secret in our own inner room. And that's kind of like our watchtower. He wants us to go find that quiet place and commune and connect with our Heavenly Father. The last time I was uh, on uh, teaching on Tour of Truth, I was talking about the Lord's Prayer as this model that we could go into and interact with these different phrases and different concepts that Jesus gives us in that prayer model where we can go to our secret room, close the door, and begin to grow in this capacity of communicating with our Heavenly Father. Uh, the Apostle Paul tells us to pray without ceasing in the New Testament. And, you know, how do you do that? <clears throat> is Paul saying, you know, all of life is one big prayer meeting at church? Well, no, of course not. But as we live our lives, as we go throughout our day, we are communicating, we're, we're, we're keeping that channel of communication open. 
uh, like that radio station. God is always speaking, but are we tuning in to his frequency? Are we tying into what he's saying? And so, you know, this is part of what I think one of the insights from Habakkuk is he is he's choosing to go and tune his heart to that frequency so he can hear what the Lord is saying. And he asks some questions. And so it's going to be really rough. God doesn't hold back. He's going to let him know what's going to be coming. But I also love in the midst of the, the uh, book of Habakkuk, although it's filled with judgment that's an impending doom. There's also this glimmer of hope in, in chapter 2, verse 14, where it says, the glory of the Lord is going to cover the earth. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And even in the midst of some discipline and some judgment, God is still giving hope for restoration and this far-off, uh, beautiful promise of a day that's going to come where all things are going to be restored. And his glory is going to be over the, the earth and, and we will be dwelling with him forever. And so I love that even when he's, uh, you know, disciplining, he's bringing hope and he's bringing promise to his people. And that's really where, where Habakkuk ends with this great lesson in, in uh, chapter three, verses 17 through 19. He works through this prayer with the Lord. And I love how this book ends. He says, though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fails and yields no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. And that is, I think, another core insight in the, the heart of the prophet or the, or the watchman is our hope is in the Lord alone. We are secure. We know even in the midst of discipline, a father will discipline his children, but it's not unto despair. There's a purpose in the discipline that's coming. And so even when we're going through challenging times, even when our nation may be beset by judgment and sorrow, we wait confidently in the goodness of God, because though he, you know, his anger may, may last for a moment, his, his mercies are new every morning. And so I love that Habakkuk, even though he's dealing with a really hard challenging word from the Lord that he has to bring to Israel. He is confident and he is strong in his hope in the Lord. All right, the second example we're moving down is into Jeremiah, which we're in in that book. And, and man, what a, a rough calling that, that Jeremiah had. He was known as the weeping prophet. But let's look at what the Lord says in the first chapter about the prophetic ministry. I'm going to just begin in chapter 1, verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And I said, Ah, oh, Lord God, I, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I'm only a youth. But the Lord said to me, don't, don't say to me, I'm only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go. Whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you declares the Lord. Then the Lord put his put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to, to tear, to break down, to destroy and to overflow, overthrow, to build and to plant. So I, I love this idea that God knows us from before we were born. 
our callings before the foundations of the earth, God preordained good works for us to walk in. That's in Ephesians chapter two, that we are Christ's workmanship and masterpiece. And I love that he knows who we are long before we have any, any clue what our identity is. God has appointed us. In Jeremiah's case, he's appointed him as a prophet, a watchman for Israel. He's encouraging him. He's saying, look, don't be afraid, even when you're going to have to walk through rejection. And I'm not sure outside of Jesus, if there was a, another prophet that was more rejected in his time than Jeremiah. But what a heart and what a calling and what a faithful example to us of, of the prophetic ministry through the scriptures. And God's word is placed within his mouth. And I, I love the idea that, that the word of God plants and uproots. It builds and it tears down. Uh, and, and so there's things that God is wanting to plant in our lives to plant in the, the, the cities that we live in, to plant in the nations that we live in. There's things that God wants to uproot in our lives and in our cities and in the nations where he has us living. There's things that God wants to build up, visions and uh, ministries and organizations and uh, opportunities in the marketplace, in government. Uh, you know, the, world, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein. He wants to build things up and he's the infinitely creative God. He can speak and something comes into existence and his word never returns void. But his word also tears down. Uh, his word can also remove. He raises one leader up and removes him. Uh, and so the Lord is both a builder and a destroyer. He's a planter and a, and a sower, but he's also the one who's going to weed that garden. And he's putting his word in the mouth of his prophet. And what a, a responsibility. You know, the Bible teaches us that the power of life and death, blessing and cursing is in her tongue. And, and, and later in Jeremiah, in 23 verse 29, the, 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 the scripture says that God's word is like a hammer and a fire. I love that. A hammer can build and a hammer can break. A fire can destroy, but also a fire can refine and purify. And so I, I love the visual imagery that, that the word of God gives us here when it comes to the prophetic ministry that he's setting within his people. Even though it's, it's, a, it's really incredible to see what God does through uh, his prophets, it's never about the prophet. The prophet is just the oracle, just the vessel. They're just human beings, uh, just like we are. And the, so the power of the prophet is not in any gifting or ability in and of, of themselves. The power of the prophet is squarely centered on God's word. It's God's revelation. He's the revealer of mysteries. And as we read in Daniel, that's what I love about the humility there of Daniel when he's interpreting the dream. He says, look, no one else is going to be able to interpret your dream, dream Nebuchadnezzar. But all mysteries belong to God. He's the revealer of all mysteries. He will make known to you what the dream is. And, and I love that. The, the, the glorification of the power of the creator, Yahweh, our heavenly father, that it's his word, it's his revelation, and the prophet only speaks by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. When I talk about the, the prophetic ministry in the church, I I often say, look, it's one thing to have the word of the Lord, but it's another thing to have the word of the Lord in the right time and to speak it according to the Holy Spirit's heart. 
you know, sometimes we can deliver a word and it can be, it can be overly harsh. It can be mean-spirited. So in my opinion, it's, we're not really lined up with God's heart unless we say his word at his appointed time with the right uh, alignment with the Holy Spirit. That's what it takes to be truly speaking prophetically. And so the watchman's heart, and Jeremiah really exemplifies this in point three, his heart is for the people. He's, he's calling out over and over again. He's kind of like Noah. Noah was a prophet, and he's preaching righteousness for 120 years, telling people what's coming, and nobody listens to him. It's kind of the same story with Jeremiah. He's pleading. He is calling out to Israel. He's telling them over and over and over again, this judgment is coming. You need to surrender. You're going into captivity. God is taking you into captivity. Don't stay in Jerusalem. If you do, you're dead. But his heart is breaking. He's weeping for the people. He's pleading with them, wanting them to obey God. The God is calling us to have his heart for his people. You might remember Jonah, you know, where that's the whole lesson, in my opinion, of, of the book of Jonah, is God has compassion on Nineveh, a wicked city that is uh, so far from what we, we would consider moral, upstanding, righteous. Um, they're enemies of Israel. They're wicked. They're evil. They're, they're just absolutely brutal. And Jonah knew, it says at the end of that book, he's going, he knew that God was going to have mercy. So he didn't want to go and preach because he knew that if he did, they would repent and God would forgive him. And so he didn't want to go because God is just that good. And, and God says, look, you know, Jonah, if you remember how that book ends, he grows up a plant to shelter and shade Jonah against the heat. And Jonah's relieved and he's thankful that God gives him this plant as he's overlooking the city at the end of the story. And then God causes the plant to die the next day. And Jonah's angry. He's Again, God's, he's having this conversation with God. He's upset. And God's like, is it right, Jonah, that you're angry with me? You didn't plant that, that plant. I grew it up over you. And, and I, I, I let it go. But you're more upset about this plant than you are about the hundreds of thousands of people and animals in Nineveh. Wow. God wants us as watchmen and prophets to have his heart when we're going to be speaking to his people. He wants our motive to be love. You know, Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 13. You can know all these mysteries. You can even offer your body to be burned, but if you do not have love, it profits you nothing. So <clears throat> I think it's uh, Ravenhill that said, if you're going to whip them, then you must weep for them. I love that quote. And uh, Charles Spurgeon said, the man who cannot weep cannot preach. Amen. There's something that is coming from within us as God's people that we have to have his heart for those that he's calling us to journey with. And even if we're, if we're going to challenge somebody, do we have God's heart for them before we even open our lips? Ask God for his heart for those that you feel called to minister to and weep for them. Uh, you know, so there's this intimacy in the ministry of the prophet and the ministry of the watchman where they know God's heart on a matter intimately and their heart is broken. And we'll talk more about that when we get to our fourth example of Nehemiah. All right, so that's Jeremiah, and of course, not exhaustive, not, not comprehensive by any stretch, but just touching on a few high-level ideas and thoughts.
So let's turn to, to Ezekiel chapter three. This is another prophet, another watchman. And I'm going to read the first 10 verses of Ezekiel three. Uh, the Lord said to me, son of man, eat whatever you find here, eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly with the scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. And he said to me, son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you are not sent to a people of foreign speech and a hard language, but to the house of Israel, not to many peoples of foreign speech and a hard language whose words you cannot understand. Surely if I sent you to such, then they would listen to you. But the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me. Because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. Behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. Like emery harder than flint have I made your forehead. Fear them not, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. Moreover, he said to me, son of man, all my words that I shall speak to you, receive in your heart and hear with your ears. So a few thoughts here in this, this initial passage in Ezekiel. Uh, the watchman or the prophet has to eat the message first for themselves, considered in their own heart. The word of the Lord comes in to the vessel, comes into the watchman, comes into the oracle and begins to change them. And so the eating of the scroll is this metaphor for consuming the message. And it goes into the heart. And ultimately, what you have is the messenger actually becomes the message. The way that God calls them to live is part of the sign and the wonder of him speaking through that, that person's life and their ministry in sometimes very peculiar ways. You know. Um, I think it's Ezekiel will later be walking around naked for a, a period of time, um, or make, or it's either Isaiah had to lay on his side or Ezekiel had to lay on their side. Uh, you know, there's just things that God has his prophets do that sometimes are just prophetic signs to people, but they're, they're living it and they are themselves the message. I, I think Hosea is another great example of this, where the Lord feels like he's, He's married to Israel through covenant, and he feels like uh, she is an adulterous wife. And so his word comes to Hosea, and he says, go and marry a prostitute. And so it wasn't enough for Hosea in that particular example to just be speaking to Israel and saying, hey, God feels like we're cheating on him, and we're an adulterous spouse. No. God requires Hosea to experience his heart himself. He has to eat the he has to eat that scroll. It goes into him and it changes him and now he's intimately connected to the message. He's lived it. He knows exactly how God feels, not exactly, but he's got a good understanding himself personally of what God is going through and his life becomes the parable. His own he's not teaching in a classroom. He's speaking from, with fire in his bones. Though the word of the Lord has gone into him to such a degree that that prophetic watchman has now become the message. The Lord is talking to him about enduring rejection and persecution, um, but he's prepared him. He's making his forehead 
stronger than Flint. And so before God even sends his uh, emissary into the, the mission, he's already telling him it's gonna, what's, what he's up against. Um, I love that, you know, we're told to count the cost um, and God is going to be faithful. He's going to speak to Israel, even though Israel doesn't want to hear what God has to say. I think that's one of the great deceptions. We like to think, well, everybody wants to know what God has to say. The exact opposite is true through the scriptures over and over and over again. People do not want to hear what God has to say. When God says what's on his mind, it requires change. It brings us to a, a point in the road. We have to make a decision. Are we going to obey? Or are we going to disobey? And this is why uh, the phrase, don't kill the messenger, uh, has become you know, something that's in our vernacular. Uh, because people had heard the message, didn't like the message, so they took out their anger and their frustration on the messenger. Uh, and so, and this is the idea too that's, that's communicated. When Jesus sends us out, if they receive you, they receive me, the one who sent you. Uh, the, mess the messenger is not greater than the one who sends them. We're just representing God's heart, his view on a matter, uh, and the, the reality of people's reaction God is telling Ezekiel, look, it's not about you. They're rejecting me. But see, and I love this part, I've made your forehead stronger than theirs. I've made, you, your, your forehead is like flint, Ezekiel. It's going to be stronger and, and more robust than, than the ones I'm sending you into. He's prepared Ezekiel. And I don't know if you've ever thought about that, how God prepares us in life. You know, how, how do you think God would prepare um, a man like Ezekiel to be rejected? My guess, we don't know this about Ezekiel's life, but my guess is he's been rejected a lot already. Um, you know, the, the, the boxer initially doesn't even know how to take a punch. They have to learn how to get, they, they develop the ability to stand in the ring and fight through adversity by getting hit a lot. They learn, they learn from taking their lumps. Same thing with the soldier who goes into battle. Uh, the one who becomes skilled in combat, they've developed battle calm because they've been under fire. They've been prepared. They've, they've been through some things. Now, now they don't panic. They don't, they don't quit. They, they are able to push through. They've got grit. They've got that perseverance. So my guess is that here when the Lord is saying, I've prepared you, I have made your forehead stronger than flint that somehow in, in the calling and before Ezekiel knows he's going to be called, God has been operating in his life, preparing the vessel for his, his duty. And now God's going to commission that and send it into uh, a very challenging situation. So as you carry on uh, in the, later on in the chapter, the Lord talks about, you're not going to speak on your own initiative. Your tongue is going to cleave to the roof of your mouth. I'll loosen your tongue when I want you to speak. That's my paraphrase. Um, so again, the watchman is charged with only speaking. We don't speak our own words. We don't offer our own opinions and say they're God's. Um, we have to sense what the Lord is saying. We can, it's what we believe the Lord is saying and communicate that at the Lord's direction and in alignment with his Holy Spirit. And that it's easier said than done. You know, we're all human, we're, we're, we're growing, none of us are perfect, we're learning to sync up with the Holy Spirit and to be in alignment, to be more sensitive to what the Holy Spirit's saying, what does he want us to do in particular situations, do I speak now, or do I need to hold my peace, 
Um, and, you know, this isn't, it's an art. It's, again, it comes back to that conversational relationship with God. Um, but the Lord wants us to speak in this capacity under his unction and, and by his direction. And in addition, the watchman is charged with warning his people of what is to come. And God, in Ezekiel's case, Ezekiel would suffer severe consequences if he, if he did not warn the people of what was coming. Uh, God basically said, if you warn them and they don't heed it, their blood will not be on your account. But if you do not warn them and they don't hear the message and they die, I will require their blood from your hand. And so that is an interesting idea. Again, going back to the watchtower, as God is moving on the earth, he does nothing without first telling his watchmen, telling the prophets. The prophets then are kind of like the forward reconnaissance in military. They're out getting the intelligence. They're coming back to the main body of the army, and they're communicating what's coming. And here's, here's, what's, here's what's about to occur. We need to get ready for this challenge. Um, and the Lord is basically saying, if we don't do that as watchmen and prophets, we're failing in our in our role and in our capacity that is, he's charging us to represent uh, what, he's, what he wants us to be saying. Okay, so that's Ezekiel. We're moving on to our final example is in Nehemiah. And so let's pull up Nehemiah. I'll read a few verses here. Nehemiah is one of my favorite guys in all the Bible. His name actually means God comforts. I love that. Um, so in, in chapter one, let's just read a few verses here. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. He's asking for news in Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The, wall, the walls of Jerusalem are broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments, let your ears be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayers of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So I love this. Nehemiah is he's in exile. He's serving in Susa. He's a cupbearer to the king. And as soon as he hears about Jerusalem from his brother, his heart's broken and he begins to weep and, he, and it, his, his brokenness leads him to intercede for that which is broken. What a great lesson that when there's challenge, when things are falling apart, when things are breaking down, 
the righteous response is to is to run to God, not away from him. Uh, we don't, you know, sometimes people ask why these bad things are happening. Where is God? Why is he not doing X, Y, or Z? And they get offended at God. Where Nehemiah is upset, Jerusalem's walls are going down. The remnant that's there are in trouble. He's not asking God, where are you? He knows exactly where God is. And he runs right into his heart. You know, but here's the point. Nehemiah's heart was broken for something that was breaking God's heart even more. God shares his feelings and his emotions with human beings. That's amazing to me. You know, God wants us to experience how he feels about things. His heart was broken more for the walls of Jerusalem than Nehemiah's were. But in Nehemiah, God had a friend. God had a man who was willing to stand in the gap. You know, his humility of even including himself and his family as sinners before God. He wasn't interceding. God helped them. Uh, they are really bad people. They've really fallen far from you. They need you. Please, God, help them. He's saying, no, Lord, we are sinners. We have abandoned. We need you. We are, we are crying out to you. And so in that way, the prophetic calling comes from within the person. You know, Nehemiah was just going about his day-to-day -day business, and this news was like an arrow to his heart, and it changed his life forever. Same thing with us. We could be going about our day and suddenly the Lord begins to break our heart for something that's his heart is broken for on the earth. You know, uh, I think about my wife in this regard. We had planted a house of prayer in England and uh, there was a young woman who started to come to the house of prayer and her heart was broken over human trafficking and broke. She had spent time with YWAM and she was out in Thailand and had just seen a lot of uh, heartbreaking reality on the streets there. So she came back and started coming to the house of prayer and she approached us and said, hey, I'd love to uh, start a justice watch. Would that be okay? And we said, you know, hey, absolutely. Would love to do that. And it was in that place where my wife's heart got absolutely broken by God's heart being broken. He said in one of the prayer watches that he was listening to the cries of his daughters in India. We had no idea what the, the actual situation was in India. That was just what the Lord said in that prayer watch. Again, it's the watchtower. God, what's on your heart? We want to hear from you. The Lord says that. They end up taking a team to India and seeing what is going on there and the reality of, of these red light districts that have 25,000 women and children. And there's, there's five huge red light districts in India. and Just the devastation of human trafficking and, and prostitution and what's happening in that culture. And God's heart was broken for that long before this young woman's heart or my wife's heart, but his heart's a bonfire and maybe a spark from that bonfire touches your heart and then your life is never the same again. You know, my wife's been to India, I don't know, 10 times now. Uh, she's worked with the Freedom Business Alliance, uh, which is that all just bringing business expertise to help strengthen businesses that are looking to employ survivors of human trafficking. Um, and so her life from where it was, was radically changed because she encountered something that God cared about, an issue. And this is what's happening with Nehemiah. Um, he's, he's just going about his day-to-day -day calling and vocational assignment, and he gets some news that breaks his heart. And now he, feel, he is 
um, thrust into action. He can't just stay put. And so the prophet and the watchman, there's the, they kind of step into the gap between the current state, the reality of the brokenness that exists right now, and how God feels about that, and, and the future state of what some, God desires something to be different. If we obey, we can go from this level of brokenness to this place of restoration and healing. And the prophet, the watchman, stands in the middle of that gap, declaring the truth of God's heart on a matter and bringing the body of uh, the people of God, the body of Christ, the church, into a point of decision on a matter that's on God's agenda. You know, I was thinking in when I was back in England in the house of prayer, I was teaching about this. And, you know, the Lord showed me a picture one time of a, of a giant wheel with literally over a million spokes on this bicycle wheel. On the outside was the inner tube and people were running on uh, the outside of that inner tube. And they're kind of jumping from spoke to spoke to spoke to spoke. And I just sensed that what the Lord was saying to me was each one of those spokes represented an issue on the earth that God's heart was broken for that he desperately cares for. And he said, a lot of times people will, will run around trying to have my heart on, on all these million issues, but come to the center, come to the, to the hub where all those spokes intersect, and I will break your heart for the one, two, or three things that you're called to be activated and poured out into. Um, you know, if we tried to obey every command of Jesus every day, we, there's not enough time in the day. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Um, you know, he wants us to go and visit the sick in the hospital. He wants us to go visit those that are in prison. What about the homeless? What about the kids that need after school care? What about the human trafficking? What about the prostitution? What about the strip clubs? What about, uh, you know, men, men and women's discipleship? What about the widows? What about the orphans? You know, there's so many things that exist in reality that require service, require love, require mission that God intimately and deeply cares about. But again, we come back and we, we communicate with him. We ascend our watchtower. We go to our secret place. We develop that intimate communication with the Lord and his Holy Spirit begins to break our hearts for what breaks his. He begins to open our eyes so that we can see what he's doing on the earth today. Isn't that what Jesus modeled? I only do what I see my father doing. And I only say what I hear my father saying. Jesus was the ultimate prophet, capital P, ultimate watchman, capital W. And he's modeling this reality for us of he didn't rush everywhere trying to be everything to everyone. He was focused on what he saw his father doing. And so I guess that begs the question for each one of us, what do we see the Father doing on the planet today? Those issues that are breaking, that have broken his heart, that he begins to invite us in, and he begins to prepare us to go, just like he did with Nehemiah, to go back to Jerusalem, to go back into the current state so that the current state can be transformed into the Lord's desired future state. And so as you, you carry forward in Nehemiah, 
you're going to find he is, this is point number two, he's dependent on prayer. He, he consistently prays to the Lord. He asks for favor uh, there early on in chapter two. He needs to get permission to leave uh, his role at the king's side. So he, he asks God for, it, for favor, and he gets the favor of the king as well. He has God's favor already, but he needs this human king to give him permission and authority and papers to go and do what, what is in his heart to do. And it's kind of cool. The Lord moves on the king's heart and, and the king blesses him to go back and go take care of the business that, that's in Nehemiah's heart. And as he goes, he doesn't immediately get to Jerusalem and then go blab everything to the remnant that's there and say, hey, I'm on this great mission from God. And actually, he's, he's very deliberate. He's slow. He's very wise. He uses a lot of discretion in, in who he begins to communicate with. There's enemies and there's opponents that begin to resist what Nehemiah brought back to Jerusalem to do. Sanballat and Tobiah are their names. And Nehemiah has to wisely um, and deliberately seek the Lord to avoid their traps and their snares. And so as we move in the, in the calling, one of the insights here from Nehemiah is that we need to proceed with prayer. We need to be 100% dependent on on God's wise counsel at all times. And we need to be aware that we have an enemy that is there to discourage, frustrate, hinder, harass God's plan and purpose in our lives and what he's trying to bring through us. And Nehemiah is a great example of, of somebody who's completely submitted to uh, what the Lord is doing and, and walking in step with him. You know, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Therefore, abide in me. I am the vine, you're the branch. You know, again, it's, it's the, the, the beautiful metaphor of our intimate relationship and conversation with God. And everything flows out of that relationship. Everything is flowing out of that intimacy. Uh, and so Nehemiah is modeling that for us. The third point there in Nehemiah's example, uh, again, his name means God comforts. Uh, he comforts the afflicted. Uh, one example of this is in chapter 8. Um, the people are actually mourning. They haven't been following God. They're discouraged. They're downtrodden. Ezra's read the law, and now they're convicted. This is the word of the Lord. We really have done, we've been really rebellious, and we've really uh, departed from God's ways. And there Nehemiah is as an example of the Holy Spirit, the God who comforts. And he says, be filled with joy today. The joy of the Lord is your strength. That's where that famous phrase is, is in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. It's in the midst of him speaking to people that are downtrodden, downcast, afflicted of heart. Their hearts are, 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 are saddened. And God is there, the watchman, the prophet is there to say, look up, get your heart right with God. He's with us. This is a great day. We need to be filled with his joy. And I love that. Even when we're at rock bottom, God's got a word for people who are at rock bottom. Look up, come back home, right? The prodigal son. God's heart, all it takes is for us to turn, and he's there. He, he wants to comfort us. The Holy Spirit is called the great comforter, longs to restore us. He wants to comfort us and, 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 uh, and bring us into his promises. But he's also, Nehemiah walks in, the Holy Spirit's also there to convict of sin. And in chapter 5, I believe it is, uh, Nehemiah is brought in and he actually has to confront uh, Israelites who are imprisoning fellow Israelites, not imprisoning, sorry, enslaving 
their fellow Israelites, and they're, they're charging them interest on loans, and there's usury, and Nehemiah kind of wades in there like John Wayne and just says, brothers, this shouldn't be this way. He says what it is. He calls it sin out for what it is, and they actually end up repenting and agreeing, and they stop doing that. Uh, later on, he's got to confront them again on some other things in, in, in Nehemiah, so he's not afraid to challenge when it's necessary uh, to call people to call the body to righteousness and holiness and the truth of God's word. And so watchmen and prophets wade into both the depressed and the down, the downcast to lift their heads and bring encouragement, but also to come and, and challenge and confront sinful practices when appropriate. And often uh, in Nehemiah's case, watchmen and prophet, uh, they, they serve at their own expense. And Nehemiah actually documents that in, in, in the book where he says, look, I've fed all these people at my table, um, laid all this stuff out in order for this to go forward. Um, and so he's not asking to be thanked. He's just appealing to God and saying the truth of what his situation was. He's, his heart is so brokenhearted. He wants to go and love is his motive. And he's going to do whatever he uh, needs to do to get the job done. There's nothing he wouldn't do because love was, was the impulse of his heart. And he wanted to be there in Jerusalem with his people. And he was so um, abandoned to the vision that God had for him that money didn't matter, food didn't matter, the expenses didn't really matter. He chalked it up to, Lord, I'm doing this all for you. It's for your glory. It's for your name alone. Um, and so these prophetic watchmen these leaders, these servants have to be servant hearted. God's raising us up. And he was the, Jesus was the ultimate model of that when he washed our feet. And he said, as I've set the example, now you should go and do likewise. And so the prophetic watchman can rally and uh, catalytically kind of bring people into God's vision and purpose and, and help set them in their lanes and in their places. And uh, Nehemiah is, is I think the uh, the ultimate example of that in the scriptures uh, outside of Jesus, he, you know, there's a lot of people whose hearts were broken over the state of Jerusalem. Uh, Nehemiah has his, his heart's broken. He comes, nothing's happening in the city there, even though people are upset, there's no plan. Um, no one's doing anything. Nehemiah comes and he organizes it. He positions people. And if you look at the story, um, you know, angels don't come down and build the wall for, for men and women. Human beings do the work. The miracle wasn't that God supernaturally built the walls of Jerusalem back, although I suppose he certainly could have. The miracle was God sent his ambassador, his prophetic watchman, onto the scene as a catalyst to equip, to plan, and to rally people to a vision. And then it said that each person, once they were, once they heard the vision, once they got the point of what God was doing, each family built the wall outside of their home. So everybody did their part, and that's the miracle. Uh, for, you know, <laughs> very rarely in human history do we have uh, great examples of unity and oneness, where we're, we're able to set aside personal agendas for the greater good. But this is what happens in Nehemiah. It's beautiful to behold, and it's something that, as we talk about 
prophets and watchmen that, that I was thinking about as we're going through these amazing books of the Bible. Um, so I will pause there and we will jump into some discussions. Question number one there on the bottom, does God use prophets today? Let's just get right after it. What do you guys think? I know there's some uh, denominations in the church that think apostles and prophets were just back uh, in, in, the, uh, in the Old Testament and the guys that, that literally walked with Jesus and knew him personally and were commissioned by him. There's no apostles, no prophets uh, on the earth today. I'm just curious. Where do you, what do you guys think? We'd love to hear some thoughts. Does God use prophets and watchmen today? Yes, yes, yes. And I'm so grateful because I think we're going back to the ancient ways. And I love hearing prophets speak. I'll feel it inside like this person is a true prophet. And it's like I can distinguish between the true and, and false. And that's that's what's so important because we're going to have a lot of, you know, in these end times, a lot of sensationalism. So it is important to know. Um, what's truth and what's a lie. But yes, he does. And he is. And he's bringing the prophets out and praise the Lord for that, because we need to know what's going on. <laughs> Amen. I often think, you know, the interplay between apostles, excuse me, and prophets is, is really key for the building of the church. I like to think of a pie. You know, it's got like 10 pieces or whatever. A prophet will, will really have a lot of clarity on a piece of that pie, and they will bring God's perspective, they will speak its heart, they will understand the message, and they will live it, and they will be all sold out, abandoned for this one, maybe two, three pieces of the pie, but the apostle is just got the wisdom to see the whole picture, and yes, those are pieces of this pie. Absolutely, we need your peace in the pie. But there's these other seven pieces that are also there that we have to hold and walk with wisdom and, and timing with God and, and allow him to pace it. And so, uh, you know, the, the apostle is more of the conductor of the orchestra. But they, the interplay between the apostles and prophets is intended to be this re reciprocity and strengthen together. Like I love Paul and Barnabas. Um, in, in, in the book of Acts, you know, great apostle, Paul's an apostle, Barnabas is a prophet. They, they were a power couple in terms of ministry. Um, they didn't always see eye to eye uh, as they walked it out. But, you know, God's work still went forward. And I, I just am one that believes the book of Acts never actually ended. We're in whatever chapter we're of the book of Acts we're in now, we're adding to it. And God still is commissioning his prophets and his apostles, along with the teachers, pastors, and evangelists. Number two, how do the prophetic gifts strengthen and bless the ecclesia, the church? How do you guys see the gift of prophecy uh, building up the church? Well, I, I see that it's God's heart um, to keep the church in line and his perspective, giving the church his perspective and also his wisdom and um what's to come you know and then helping them to prepare for what's to come and encouraging encouraging the church because a prophet i well i see prophets as, as being very humble and they don't 
they can encourage because they want to build up and they see through things, you know, it's, they can see um, maybe where someone's struggling and they, they want to encourage them because they see greater things in them. So really just building the church and then also being able to discern what needs to be removed. Um, and that's important. And um, that conviction and, and repentance always in line with, we've got to return to the Lord, return to the Lord. So keeping the church on a good path, it seems like. Yeah. I mean, there's something, if you've ever received a, a word in season, that's been, God has spoken it. It's his word coming through a prophetic instrument, but it's like your mail gets read and you just know, wow, God sees me and he loves me. And that was a word right into my heart to lift my head and comfort me and build me up. That's the beauty of the prophetic ministry. Totally agree, Chantel, the, the building up. That's what Paul says. Prophetic, it's there to edify and build up the church. Go ahead. Is that Lois? Do you want to share? Yeah, I was just going to say they're not always received. Sometimes they don't have that uplifting message if if they're correcting. Do you know what I'm saying? Because it's not, it's, it may be for your good to repent. And so if they're reading your mail, it sometimes it's not good mail. And, and so they might expose something that you need to correct. And so they're not often received. Like today, when people want someone to tickle their ears, a, a true prophet is not necessarily going to just tell you good things. They might may tell you things where you need to look at what's going on in your life and reassess and repent to, to get on the right path. Absolutely. Such a good point. Uh, and again, you know, just thinking back to Nehemiah, you know, there were some, some things that were going on there in Israel that though he was there to bring a lot of comfort, he was also just waited in there and confronted when he needed to. Um, discipline is part of God's family. Like he's a heavenly father and he disciplines those that he loves. And I think the prophetic gift um, can be operative in that way of just revealing an issue that needs to be removed and, and dealt with. It's kind of like the uh, MRI scan, spiritually scan can scan the body and be like, we need to actually remove this cancer, uh, needs to get dealt with. We're not going to put our heads in the sand and pretend there isn't an issue. Um, the prophet can't do that. They've got fire in their bones. They're not going to be able to just pretend because they're, they're all about the truth. This is, this is how God feels on something. This is the truth of the situation. We're going to have to walk with Jesus into some uncomfortable places. And of course, Jesus modeled that. He's, you know, he did it in 100% prophetic truth and 100% uh, the heart of, the, of a loving father. These two things are not in tension. Um, he doesn't exercise or, or doesn't uh, remove his love when he exercises judgment or discipline. He does them there. You cannot divide God. He is always consistent and he is holistically that's the idea of integrity he's one he's one with himself in every situation he is consistent there's no shadow of turning with god 
He isn't one way on a Monday and the next time you talk to him, he's changed his mind. He's consistent and never changes. And I think that as the prophetic ministry is, you know, it is 100% loving when it's encouraging and building up. And it's 100% loving when God breaks out the MRI scan and says, this is an issue we got to deal with. And because I'm thinking about this, one example is in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There's a man in the city of Corinth that is actually sleeping with his stepmother. And Paul says, look, I've already passed judgment on this guy in the spirit. You need to remove the sin from the body. A little leaven's going to leaven the whole lump of dough. I've given him, he actually says, I've given him over to Satan. Oh, that's spicy. Um, for the destruction of his flesh. But then in 2 Corinthians it's pretty clear that this is this guy has actually repented and come back. And Paul says, welcome him back in. You know, bring him back in and restore him. Love it. I love that. I love that this is a real world problem in the first century church. Paul doesn't run away from the scandal. He doesn't say it isn't what it is. He says, this should not be happening in the fellowship of believers. But when that man actually, when the disciplines actually brought about a fruitful repentance, he's now not going to limit how he sees this man. You failed here in this one area. So that's the only way that we're ever going to have a relationship with you is you are the one who sinned and fell. That's not God's heart either. His heart is to restore. And so anyway, I'll stop. I don't want to go on another sermon, but you guys get my heart. Uh, great point, Lois. The prophetic ministry does highlight and challenge and, 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 and points our way to the truth. I think because many times when as a as a prophet or a watchman or even as a pastor, how we present the message is important. And um, over the years, the reason why doors are shutting in the church for the prophets is because they elevate themselves they are the messenger no one else and that turns them down really like one classic example is my husband when i talk to him about, uh oh this guy's a prophet oh shut 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 but at the same time this very man my husband he prophesies and so it's like because then when i talk to him uh, you know it's like sometimes when we really talk about it we have some kind of argument but then when when, when we and I said, no, no, I must present it in love because I'm not that. And then I realized that actually he really, he really feels people should speak for God's word, the truth, in with the right heart, with the right motive. Not to elevate themselves, but to to connect the person to God and to to um to put God first, the reason God has a reason, and it's and on the church side, as a pastor, I will say because I've I've gone through many uh, churches where pastors they they feel that they shouldn't change because the moment you say a word of correction, they have built a structure so strong and everything. But if you're going to prophesy and it's coming against to transform or change their structure that's too much they say it's too much for them so even though they know it's right they will say uh no 
because they they are the loss. I I I will say that. So in my case, so today the law has told me not to enter structures, but go and see the individual who needs the work. It's it's about our heart. The messenger has to become the message. I also notice that prophets, they sometimes if they are not emotionally healed inside, they tend to speak based on their past experience, past uh, uh, whatever fears and all that. So the, the word is going, but it's not going the way it should. Exactly right. And that the prophets are fallible, just like apostles and pastors yeah. and teachers and evangelists. And so I think in some respect, the controversy that exists, there's nobody out there that says, you know, well, God doesn't use pastors anymore or teachers. We're comfortable with those. But there are people who will teach there's no apostles and prophets because there's been abuses that have happened uh, for exactly what you're saying. That, you know, and it comes back to what you're talking about, the elevation of the messenger, which goes against Jesus said the messenger is not greater than the one who sent them. And actually, in the book of Revelation, it says the, the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. The spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. And when you, I think, I mean, there's, there's a lot there to, to consider what is the Holy Spirit saying in that idea. But I think one thing that comes to my mind is prophecy that's true will always glorify Jesus as the son of the living God. It's not going to seek to elevate the prophet or another human being. The true spirit of prophecy is going to glorify Christ and, and shine all of the glory onto him. You know, it's uh, God wants to us to have these testimonies. It's our story, but it's his glory. He works through us. Jesus said, shine, let your good deeds shine before man um, so that your name can be on a big marquee and you can have a huge platform. No, let your good deeds shine before men so that they may glorify your father in heaven. You know, and so that that ego that's in all of us, that desire, that pride that exists in all of us in the human heart, validate me, see me. Um, recognize me, give me the credit, give me, 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 all of that that's in us, God wants to put all that to death so that he gets 100% of the glory, 100% of the praise, and that Christ gets glorified in that, in that environment. So really, really great points, Shira. Thank you so much for, for sharing your, your heart with us. What are some of the challenges that prophets and watchmen face? Biblically, we can, you can pull scripture examples. You can talk about uh, modern stuff, whatever you guys want to. What do you think are some challenges that are pretty common to most prophets or watchmen? Well, it seems like in the Bible, um, a lot of rejection of the word. They don't want to listen. Sometimes prophets were lonely not lonely with God. They had God, of course, but kind of loners sometimes. I think rejection and loneliness are 
you know, kind of pretty common struggles that they all go through. You know, I was hearing a message from Dan Allender. I think he has a podcast and it's a book that's called The Restoration of the Heart. But he talks about the prophet as being kind of the stranger or the outsider, the outcast, the different one, the one who's, you know, not normal, not conventional, the one who's misunderstood and, and you know, people judge and just said that, that, that she or he, they're weird. We, you know, they're kind of crackpots. So that, that rejection and that, uh, that misunderstanding can really, I think, lead to a lot of that loneliness that, that you're talking about. Um, but I think in the same way that God prepared Ezekiel and said, look, I've made your forehead stronger than theirs. There's a conditioning that begins to happen in the life of that watchman um, to where all that matters is what God is saying um, and, and his truth coming to his people. So great, great stuff, Chantel. I thought of Nathan when he had to go before David and, you know, tell him his story to get him to confess and repent regarding Bathsheba. And he had to do that before the king. So, yeah, they, they have um, their huge, let's say, risk takers. I mean, they're obedient to the Lord, but at risk of their own lives. Most of the prophets that we see, all of them, definitely are are putting their lives on their line for what the father says which which is a great example for us but it's still nevertheless it's it's a little daunting to think about that you know paul lays out his you know his resume at different points in the in his epistles of just shipwrecks and i think he was whipped you know they they say it's 40 lashes but it's really it's 30 it's 40 minus one because they say you'll die if you get whipped 40. So in their custom, it would be 39 stripes. And he got that five times. He was stoned. Um, you know, Isaiah was sawn in, in two. Like, you just, it, it's rough. You know, people, again, people kill the messenger because um, they don't like the message. Uh, but God's still on his throne and he uses that. And the gospel of the kingdom is gone forth. Uh, victorious because of the martyr's blood, because there have been people that have been willing and are so convinced of their, of who Jesus is that their death actually, it's a privilege to give it for his glory and for, this, for the salvation of other human beings to uh, come into that saving knowledge and truth of, uh, of the gospel. And one thing I want to say when Pastor Shearer was talking about, um, she makes me laugh with the pew, 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 and just how sometimes when you're speaking God's word, you get it out. One thing that I, that I pray daily is purify my motives, you know, because my heart is, you know, he's softening the stony places of my heart, but who knows, you know, he only knows my heart. So I'm always worried about that and saying, help me to have a pure heart so that when I am speaking to someone that I have pure motives, because then the word can go forth and the person can be healed and, and all the things. And earlier you said, spoke about Ezekiel. Sometimes God asks us to do something that is 
seems weird you know eating the scroll and um, and like Hosea you know go married a harlot and uh, I, there are times actually even present moment that you will find prophets a lot asking them to do certain things that you know you, it may seem not logic but God has a reason that's what I wanted to say even now amen tonight is actually a communion let's take a one or two minute break you, if you don't have your elements like me uh, you can go get them and then we'll we'll come back and we'll close off in prayer and take communion together here well let's uh, go ahead and grab your bread where we thank you for uh, you said, whenever you do this, you do this in remembrance of me. So we just want to remember tonight, Lord, that it, this represents your body. Your body that was given for us. That we can have fellowship with you. We can have that conversational relationship with you that we're talking about. Thank you that you're the bread that came down from heaven. And I thank you that we don't live by physical bread alone, but we live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so we just welcome your word in our in season here in our own journeys with you as we're reading through scriptures, different uh, challenges that are in front of each one of us, our families, things that we're navigating. Lord, could we be like Habakkuk and place our hope and our confidence in you? Um, or would you be the God who comforts us and lifts our heads like you did in Nehemiah. Can we be ones that would be uh, just obedient to and sold out, abandoned to your heart, to your truth, to what you're calling us to do. So we just thank you, Lord, for your, your, your body, for your word. I'm taking your bread. We thank you, Lord, for the juice, the wine, Lord, that represents your blood that was poured out and shed for us, that redeems us, rescues us, restores us, reconciles us to God, having the Father, our Creator. It's your blood that made the way for atonement, for forgiveness of sins. So we just drink this tonight. We're grateful for your mercy grateful for the invitation to come into your family. We're grateful for being adopted. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.